This is the Notable Speeches Podcast. Thanks for listening. Today, a recent address by prolific writer and cultural critic Rod Dreher on the topic of resisting what he calls a rising soft totalitarianism. Mr. Dreher was born and raised in Louisiana and earned a degree in journalism from Louisiana State University. He has worked for The Washington Times, The New York Post, The Dallas Morning News, and National Review. And he has written for many other publications, including The Wall Street Journal and the now-defunct Weekly Standard. Today, Rod Dreher is the senior editor and a blogger for the website The American Conservative. His most well-known book is The Benedict Option, subtitled A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation, published in 2017. Mr. Dreher mentions that book as well as a forthcoming work in this address recorded February 4, 2020 at a national conservatism conference held in Rome, Italy, titled God, Honor, Country. Five years ago, I received a phone call from an American physician who was rather alarmed. He told me that his mother emigrated to America from Czechoslovakia. When she was young, she served six years as a political prisoner because she was part of the underground Catholic resistance to communism. Now, as an old lady living in the U.S. with her son and his wife, she said to her son, the things I'm seeing in this country today remind me of when communism came to my homeland. She was talking about the growing intolerance, even hysteria, from the left against anything that conflicts with their ideology. I knew that political correctness was a big problem, but this sounded exaggerated to me. Communism? Maybe she's just a frightened old woman, I thought. But over the next three years, three or four years, I began talking to immigrants from the Soviet bloc, men and women who once lived with communism, but who escaped to the West. I would ask them, what are you seeing today? Is this old Czech woman, is she onto something? Over and over, I heard the same thing. Yes, it is really happening here. We can feel it in our bones. Almost all of them are quite frustrated, even angry, that no American believes them. I understand the skepticism of my countrymen. I was skeptical, too, when the doctor first called me. Today, though, after interviewing a number of these people and spending much of this past year traveling throughout the former communist countries of the East to interview former dissidents and political prisoners, I am convinced that they're right. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, quote, there is always this fallacious belief. It would not be the same here. Such things are impossible. Alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth, close quote. It is not only possible here in the liberal democratic West, but it's taking form right now. People who live through communist totalitarianism are trying to sound the alarm. They're trying to wake the rest of us up before it is too late. As Marek Benda, a Czech politician who comes from a very brave dissident family in Prague, told me last year, the fight for freedom is always with us. Only one generation divides us from tyranny. The fight against the new totalitarianism is the fight of our generation. It is here, it is now, and it cannot be avoided. 
Before we go further this morning, let's define our term. What is totalitarianism? In her classic 1951 study, The Origins of Totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt examined both the Nazi and communist movements in an attempt to discern why they appeal to the masses. Totalitarianism makes every aspect of life political. It not only seeks obedience from the people, but attempts to force everyone to welcome their own oppression. We have to internalize the ruling ideology and make it our own. As George Orwell put it, the goal is for everyone to learn to love Big Brother. Many of the conditions that Arendt saw as a seedbed of totalitarianism are present today in our decaying liberal democracies. Here's a short list of the pre-totalitarian signs that we see very strongly in our society and that Hannah Arendt saw in the pre-totalitarian Russia and Germany. Widespread loneliness and social atomization, loss of faith in institutions and hierarchies, a desire to transgress, a rise in the power and the dominance of ideological thinking, the increased use of propaganda, the value of loyalty to a person, to an ideology, more than expertise, and again, the politicization of everything. As I see it, though, we have two basic things that distinguish us from pre-communist Russia and pre-Nazi Germany. First of all, the, the all-consuming ideology among us is not racist nationalism or Marxism-Leninism, but rather a globalist, victim-focused identity politics, which often calls itself social justice. The revolutionary class is not the German Volk or the international proletariat, but rather the marginalized, the oppressed, the sacred victim. Like Bolshevism, social justice is a utopian political cult. It sounds like a political platform or maybe a, a therapeutic management system, but the best way to understand it is as a fanatical religion. Second, the technological environment today is vastly different from 100 years ago when the 20th century's totalitarianisms emerged. The most important difference, as I see it, is that we now render all human life and experience as digital data that is storable, searchable, and that can be exploited by the surveillance state and the surveillance capitalist of Google, Amazon, Facebook, and others. The People's Republic of China, for example, now has the capabilities and the will to surveil and control its own people to a degree that Mao, Stalin, and the totalitarian tyrants of the 20th century could only have dreamed. Here's why many of us have been very slow to appreciate the totalitarian nature of contemporary liberalism. It's because the emerging totalitarianism is not going to be a version of the grim scenario imagined by George Orwell in 1984. Rather, it's going to be more like the alternative dystopia imagined by Aldous Huxley in Brave New World. Orwell imagined a world much like Stalin's Russia, where the state controlled society by fear, by pain, and by terror. By contrast, Huxley imagined a world where the state controlled the masses through managing pleasure and comfort. In our emerging dystopia, 
Western people will surrender political power to a state and to authorities who promise to protect their therapeutic desires, especially maximizing sexual freedom. It will do this through some version, I believe, of China's social credit system, where one's freedom to move in, in society and to participate in the economy is decided by an algorithm that rewards or punishes one based on one's belief, one's friends, and so forth. As in Brave New World, the most important values in the new totalitarianism will be safety and well-being. If religious and political liberties threaten either safety or well-being, well, then they will have to be eliminated. This is already happening within universities and other institutions that, in a very Soviet way, are stigmatizing dissent as pathological. And as our host, uh, Yoram Hazoni, has written, it seems like the entire country is becoming a university campus. This is what the American social critic James Poulos calls the pink police state. I love that phrase. The pink police state uh, entails not only the government, but also academic and cultural institutions, as well as large corporations, woke capitalists. That's the form that the new totalitarianism is taking. So how do we resist it? The good news is that there are people who retain living memory of communist totalitarianism. They have seen this kind of thing before. They are warning the rest of us that we are walking into a trap. We need to listen to them. Today at this conference, you will hear speeches and comments by my colleagues, uh, which will focus, uh, I suspect, of the resistance in political terms. This is absolutely important. But let us begin by talking about the cultural resistance, without which political resistance cannot succeed. First, we have to reclaim and defend cultural memory. When the Nazis invaded Poland, their ultimate plans were not simply to rule Poland, but to destroy the Polish nation. The Germans sought to do this the way all totalitarians do, by controlling the cultural memory of the Polish people. They had to make the Poles forget their history and forget their Catholic religion. A young Polish actor, Karol Wojtyla, committed himself to patriotic resistance, but he didn't pick up a gun. He and his theater friends wrote and performed underground plays on religious and historical themes to keep that cultural memory alive. These theatrical events happened in secret. If the Gestapo had discovered them, all the actors and all the audience would probably have been shot. Wojtyla and the theater company literally put their lives on the line to keep alive the cultural memory of their nation. We have to do the same thing in our time. The globalists try to make the nations ashamed of their heritage in the same way the communists did to the masses that they wish to control. We have to refuse this. We do not have to have this triumphalist myth of a golden age. We only have to look around us with eyes of gratitude for the good and the beautiful things that our ancestors have given to us and defend them as our own. I should add that the ideology of consumer capitalism also tries to sever us, to disconnect us from our past. If we're nothing but individuals uh, defined by our desires, it's easier to sell us things. We of the resistance must declare that some things are not for sale. As John Paul II said, man is not made for the market, 
The market is made for man. Second, we must establish and defend solidarity. I'm not talking specifically about the Polish trade union. I'm talking about something more intimate, the bonds among small groups of people. In every post-communist country I visited, I heard the same thing from former dissidents, that the strong bonds of solidarity with others gave them the courage to fight back. Last year, I stood in a secret underground room in suburban Bratislava, where Catholic Samizdat was printed for a decade. My guide was Jan Simulczyk, a historian who in the 1980s was part of the Catholic underground that distributed that Samizdat. He told me that like everybody else in the movement, he was afraid. But the camaraderie his friends in his underground cell gave him, that gave him the courage to resist. Dr. Václav Benda, a hero of the Czech resistance, worked to bring the Czech people together face to face to remind them that they were actually a people. The state had demoralized the masses by making them feel isolated, besieged, and alone. As Dr. Benda saw, the simple act of rebuilding social solidarity by getting people together for any reason at all, face to face, that was counter-revolutionary. In our time, the state does not force us to choose loneliness and isolation behind a glowing screen. We're doing this to ourselves. We can fight back by rebuilding the bonds of community in practical ways where we live. Third, we must strengthen our religion. I don't simply mean that we have to go to church more. Rather, we have to be far more radical than that. In my book, The Benedict Option, I write about St. Benedict of Nursia, the sixth century Christian who responded to the collapse of the Roman imperial order by creating a parallel society dedicated to disciplined prayer and service to God. Over the next few centuries, the Benedictine monks and nuns played an absolutely key role in, in civilizing barbarian Europe. It began, though, with St. Benedict developing a Christian way of life that was resilient in the face of extraordinary stresses of the early medieval period. This past Sunday, a couple days ago, uh, I made a pilgrimage to the cave in Subiaco where Benedict lived alone for three years as a hermit, praying and fasting and seeking the will of God. From that little hole, in the side of a lonely mountain, an hour outside of Rome, grew a seed of faith that over the next centuries would rebuild Western civilization. If you feel powerless and despairing today, go to Subiaco and see what God can do with a single man who puts the search for him above everything else. We now live in a post-Christian civilization. Right now, while there is time, Christians at the local level must commit ourselves to creating new ways of living out old truths. Every one of the anti-communist dissidents I interviewed were and are strongly believing Christians. Pavel Skabinski, a biographer of John Paul II, told me that humanity is like a kite. As long as a kite is connected to the earth by a string, it can fly very high. But if the line is cut, the kite falls to the ground. We are the kite. The line is our connection to God. 
Without the God of the Bible, we will not be able to resist both the coming totalitarianism or the parallel temptation to embrace forms of resistance that are evil. Here's what I mean. In 1939, the English poet W.H. Auden was living in Manhattan. He went to see a movie in a part of the city where lots of German immigrants lived. As a newsreel came on uh, describing the Nazi invasion of Poland, German-speaking members of the audience leaped to their feet and began shouting, kill them, kill them. Auden was deeply shocked by the nakedness of the evil, the unashamed evil displayed by these Nazi sympathizers in New York City. And he understood, Auden understood that mere humanism would not be enough to defeat that kind of passion. After this dark epiphany, Auden returned to the church. Finally, we have to do the most counter-revolutionary thing of all, embrace the value of suffering. This strikes at the heart of the pink police state and its therapeutic totalitarianism. If you're not willing to suffer the loss of social status, if you're not willing to suffer even the loss of a job, if you're not willing to suffer the loss of freedom and if it should come to it, even the loss of your life for the sake of the truth, then you have already in some sense surrendered to evil. This is the lesson that we learn from the anti-communist resistance. The essence of their Christian hope was that suffering has ultimate meaning if it is joined to the transformative passion and the love of Jesus Christ. The willingness to suffer for the truth is at the core of the final message that Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave to the Russian people on the eve of his 1974 exile in an essay titled, Live Not By Lies, in fact, I've taken that as the title for my forthcoming book about my travels among the anti-communist dissidents, Live Not By Lies. A few years later, after Solzhenitsyn published this essay, the Czech dissident Václav Havel urged his readers to, quote, live in truth. Havel told a fable about a greengrocer who has the sign, workers of the world unite in his shop window, not because he believes the slogan, but because he doesn't want trouble from the communist government. One day, in Hobbel's fable, one day the greengrocer removes the sign from his window because he wishes to live in truth. He doesn't want to have to speak the, the official lie. And the man, the greengrocer, will suffer for it, says Havel. He might lose his business. He won't be able to travel. His children might not get into universities. The pain will be real, but his act will have ultimate value. The humble greengrocer will have shown by this simple act of resistance that it is possible to refuse to conform to the official lies, that it is possible to live in truth if you're willing to accept the suffering that comes with that act of conscience. So the life of Václav Havel, the first president of a free Czechoslovakia, and the other anti-communist dissidents shows that those who are willing to suffer for the truth might, in the end, triumph. Interestingly enough, very few of the dissidents uh, expected communism to end in their lifetime. They resisted communism because that was the right thing to do. Well, what about us? What will we do in our time and in our place to resist the coming totalitarianism? The pink police state is kindlier than its totalitarian predecessors, 
But in its ideology of globalist homogenization and technological reach, it is no less a threat to the existence of religion, of families, of tradition, and of peoples. Yes, we must fight it politically when we can, but we must also fight it inside ourselves. I want to close by telling you about a hidden hero who deserves to be rediscovered today. In 1943, a Croatian Jesuit named Father Tomislav Plagajan was organizing Catholic anti-Nazi resistance in his home country. When he learned that the Gestapo was going to arrest him, the priest fled to his mother's country, Czechoslovakia. He adapted his mother's last name, Kolakovic, and began to organize Catholic anti-communist resistance. Father Kolakovic was an anti-totalitarian, uh, whether it was totalitarianism of the right or the left, he was committed to fighting it. So why did he organize anti-communist resistance in 1943? because Father Kolakovic knew that the Germans were going to lose the war. But as he told the young Slovak Catholics who gathered around him, communism was ultimately going to come to power in their country. And that, he prophesied, would mean horrible persecution for the church. So Father Kolakovic did not just sit around waiting for it to happen. Instead, he organized cells all around the country, groups of young Catholics who gathered to pray, to study the Bible, and to hear lectures. They also learned the arts of resistance, for example, how to survive an interrogation. They established resistance networks all around the Slovak part of the nation. When the communist dictatorship installed itself in 1948, Father Kolakovic's network, called The Family, was ready. The family became the backbone of the underground church in Slovakia, which was the chief source of anti-communist resistance in that part of the country. Today, we await a new Father Tomislav Kolakovic, a visionary who can read the signs of the times and who can build the ways of life and the social networks capable of mounting resistance to the coming evil. My friends, one way to define hope is the marriage of memory to desire. If we can remember what we once had, and if, if we desire to have it again, then we have something to hope for, something to work for. There's no better place than Rome to ponder the cultural memory of our common civilization. From St. Benedict's Cave in Subiaco to Wojtyla's hidden theater under the Nazi occupation to the underground Samizdat room in communist-controlled Bratislava, these places and these people and these events are all part of our cultural memory. Let these memories shape our desires for God, for truth, for liberty, and for home. And may they give birth to the joy of resistance. Thank you. Author and cultural critic Rod Dreher speaking last month at a conference on national conservatism held in Rome, Italy. That gathering was sponsored by several organizations, including the Center for European Renewal, the Edmund Burke Foundation, and the International Reagan Thatcher Society. If you have a comment or suggestion about the Notable Speeches podcast, please send us an email. Here's the address, feedback at notablespeeches.com. And if your podcast app allows you to rate podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you'd give us a rating. For a heads up regarding new episodes, follow us on Twitter at Notable Speeches. Thanks again for listening. I'm Joseph Slife.